Well, we are very excited uh, to welcome Josh Santian to the PlaceCast. Um, Josh, uh, we were working, uh, we had the, uh, the first episode that we did, we had an interview and discussion with Cindy Shepard, who's a councilwoman in Hearst. Um, and Hearst is uh, a suburb uh, in what we call the mid-cities of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So you have Dallas-Fort Worth that are about 35 miles away from each other. And, and you have the mid-cities, which are just a little bit north of being in, in the middle of that. Um, and we came across Josh, uh, and he and his partner had been doing some very, very interesting work in an adjacent suburb uh, called Bedford. Um, and uh, Josh is going to talk a little bit about that. Josh very much intuitively kind of understood a lot of the principles that um, that firms like ours and planners like ours have been figuring out for many years. Uh, Josh just kind of got some of them and, and helped to apply them in a suburban context. And he started some arts organizations um, that uh, were actually working in these strip mall suburban contexts, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about that, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about how we came to connect with each other. Uh, so Josh is founder of this group Central Arts of Bedford, and later um, we worked with him in the Central Arts of Hearst in these two adjacent suburbs to each other, and he does a lot of very interesting things. So um, Josh, thank you for being on the podcast, and welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Awesome. So when we first met, um, we were working on a project that, that was essentially a, uh, a strip mall public space activation project in Hearst. Um, and we had heard all of these amazing things about this place, Central Arts of Bedford, um, and about how it was doing these really cool cultural events and that it, these, and it was doing other things such as window displays and so forth that was helping to bring new life um, to this strip mall. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about when you founded uh, Central Arts of Bedford and, and why and, and kind of what you started to see after you had done it? Okay, so Central Arts started back in 2000. This is our fourth year, but we started a program called Arts Front, which was at the Bedford Meadows Shopping Center, which we took an empty shopping center and we filled it with art. And that was on behalf of Mayor Griffin for the city of Bedford. He had asked the Cultural Commission if we could host this program. And being how I set up a gallery show when I was in college a couple times, I was the only one with the experience to do that. So I spearheaded that project. At the time, the shopping center had four businesses. It had Planned Parenthood, R&D Jewelers, Steak One, and The Pub. And from there, they got, in the time period, Just for Kids expanded. So they opened up there. And the shopping center was pretty much a ghost town at the time. And my oldest son said that a lot of hoodlum stuff went on over there because there was a lot of dark areas. And the first thing we did was we started lighting everything up. And we made sure that the building was lit up, the art was prominent, and it brought life into the shopping center. So the first business to move in was Sue Schultz with What's Popping Texas. And that broke the seal in that shopping center. And from there, we got Moonlight Cakes, Holy Boba, our NTX sportswear, a nail salon, a martial arts studio, and it just took off. I mean, this whole thing just flourished. So now we're at 98% occupancy there. There's a weird space between a dog groomer that's never going to get rented out because of the dog groomer. But for the most part, I mean, this shopping center is completely restored, and it's awesome to see that because it was an eyesore for the longest time. 
So this is this is was very fascinating to me when I learned about this because you know we've been involved in places where we've helped to bring window displays into downtowns and so forth, um, but we don't think of this necessarily in this suburban strip mall context. Um, and if you had asked me before, I would have said that that probably doing something like that, um, if you have a suburban strip mall that doesn't have a lot particularly going on and there's nothing surrounding it that particularly would would suggest that it would have a lot of momentum I wouldn't have thought that that would that would work and and so this is fascinating to me that it's that first step to have these art in these windows um, that it was so successful and what's interesting is that you you there wasn't a similar success in in surrounding strip malls um, and in fact there was this one succeeded where other where at least one other had had kind of declined can you talk about that yeah, so what we had done was we went across the street to the Gator Shopping Center, and we filled up six or seven shopping storefront windows with this, and the Gator owners sold out to another company, so then they kind of switched around, and the new leasing agent didn't like the fact that we did this. So without even knowing about this, they pushed all our art into this one big space and white-boxed the rest of the areas. This is about three and a half years ago. In that time period... Bedford Meadows, which is a shopping center we're in, flourished, and at the same time, Gators declined because there was nothing bringing anyone in there. It was like these great-looking white boxes, but there was nothing else to derive your eye over there. And we still have one storefront over there, but we don't really actively use it. But every now and then, I'll go over there just to check on things, and I'll find little notes that people were saying that we appreciated just to see this artwork in this little empty space. But I think the main reason why that the Gators project didn't work was because it was just... There was nothing to hold it together. There was no contingency, so it wasn't like there was new stuff going in there all the time. And being how Gators really didn't want us in there, we just kind of left it alone. And at the same time, while we flourished, they declined and they lost about four different tenants at the time period. I mean, this is this is pretty mind blowing. I, you know, obviously, it's not a, a huge uh, sample size. Um, but it looks like just going into a strip mall and doing some very simple things that you added a tremendous amount of, of value, um, even with this initial action. So that, that seems like something that is, is worth looking at and worth replicating. And I know that, that you are doing some stuff to, to replicate it in other places. Um, if we could think kind of broader. So you have this this Hearst Euless Bedford area that's kind of these these three cities that work together and have a lot of cultural similarities. Um, it, you know, how, how would you kind of describe the the retail environment in these three places and kind of, you know, how, how it was set up and, and what the retail environment right now looks like overall in these places? Okay, so the retail environment at Hearst, I mean, okay, let's just talk about Bedford first. At Bedford, the retail environment is we i wanted an art district there but we ended up getting a snack district so we have moonlight cakes holy boba and what's popping texas and all three of those complement each other really really well so we have this little snack district where people will hop from one store to the other store to the other store and pick up their snacks because bedford for some reason really loves snacks and it really changed the whole culture of that shopping center and we lost steak one which was one of the original tenants there and SAAP uh, beef jerky moved in there. So that brought in a Loatian quality to the shopping center that we didn't have. They make some awesome Loatian food. They also make really good beef jerky and other stuff. So there's another reason for people to come down there as our little snack district expanded out. 
one of the things that I noticed is that the businesses that really, really flourish there are the people that are actually making stuff or doing stuff. Like, for example, we lost the cleaner that was in there for a short period of time. Within a month, we rented it out to a, a knife sharpening business. And those guys are really just taking off. And I think what it is is that when people see other people just making stuff or doing craft stuff, it really brings an interest into that area. And within the first day that the knife shop opened up, we had done a pop-up called Buy to Bedford. And you, he said he could have asked for a better launch than that because he said all of a sudden the community knows me. The community were bringing me stuff almost instantly from that event. So that's how we, that's how we expanded it out. At the same time, we moved um, Arts Front over to Richardson over at the, at the Lockwood District. And at the Lockwood District, we had, a several, we had three pop-ups over there, and within 24 hours, they had several offers on that building alone. That's amazing. Yeah, the program does work, and it works really, really well. So we're taking over two more buildings over in downtown Richardson, and we're expanding out that way. So, so this is just to kind of give the listeners a little bit more context. So um, Josh is, is started this in this area of Bedford, which is I, I would describe as kind of um, having expanded at a time that's, that is leaving behind some challenges. Uh, it has a lot of strip mall retail over there um, and no real traditional downtown or anything like that. So there's this challenge of this place that even before the current crisis was probably over-retailed where you have a lot of just empty retail spaces in some of these strip malls and there's a need to do some of these very creative things. So you know we can, we can expect kind of connecting to the current time uh, that communities like this are going to have even bigger challenges with commercial, um, with commercial vacancies. They're going to be sitting on a whole bunch of strip malls and, and other types of places that are going to be vacant. And, and one of the reasons why um, I really wanted to bring Josh on, besides the fact that uh, he did such fascinating things, is that I think that your approach is going to be especially needed when th these places are looking at even much higher retail vacancies and have to think in terms of placemaking and have to think in terms of having places where people want to be. Um, and these are the types of places that a lot of people in, in the urban planning world have, have kind of given up on. Um, that we've said, you know, there might be these, these cool little downtowns here and there, um, but strip malls are never going to be cool and, and there's nothing that we can do to make them interesting places or engaging places or, or places for people. Um, and I, I'd love to uh, you know, hear more about the, the work that you're doing in, in Richardson, um, which does have a, a pre-war downtown, um, but it's not yet, you know, it's not in the form of a very you know, traditional main street quite yet. It's still, there's still, um, in terms of the, the built form and the bones, uh, still more work that needs to be done, and I think that that you're going to be able to uh, to help with that a lot. Um, another thing that's that's fascinating to me is kind of thinking of the next step. So you did this art project um, that was uh, very successful. That even as someone who advocates these types of things finds it to be surprisingly successful. Uh, and then you followed up with having this this not for profit cultural organization, uh, Central Arts. Um, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about wh why you decided to start that um, specifically and then how that's, how that's kind of started to pan out. 
Okay, so Chris Gillum was the original owner of the shopping center at Bedford Meadows, and he was the one the mayor had negotiated with. And about six months into this project, uh, Michael Zimmerman, who's actually probably the best landlord you could ever ask for. I mean, anything that Green Earth does is just, he's got a really good caring spirit about the, about the center, and everything he does is just, you know, he's always just about improving it. So I was worried at the time that we were going to get a, a landlord that just didn't understand it because Gators had just done that to us. So I rented a space and we called it Central Arts. And actually today is the first, is the fourth anniversary of our first actual art show. Nice. Congratulations. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of, it was kind of a fun day. I just saw that on Facebook today. And from there we turned it into what Bedford was really missing. We didn't have an art culture. We didn't have a place where you could just go look at art. We didn't have a place for artists to meet. We didn't have a gallery. We didn't have a studio. We had nothing. So at the time, I opened this up, and we start teaching classes, and we start having events, and we did over 120 events the first year alone. Wow. And the whole point was I was going to teach Bedford that there was something cool about it. And we had tons of people that just went through that, and people were like, wait, why are you going to do this? And it was great to watch the, the Dallas artists that were acting like they were so elite come down to our the mid-cities, and they were just kind of scoffing. And then once they saw it, they're like, oh, this is actually kind of cool. Because we, we weren't doing the traditional granny art. We weren't doing the old lady art. We were doing what everybody else is doing. And at first, a lot of Bedford people, they just didn't understand it. Like this one old lady came in, and she wanted to get, check out what the gallery was. And she's like, oh, yeah, none of this is anything I'm interested in. But... Within an hour later, this younger couples came in. They're like, oh, wow, this is crazy. This is super cool. I never would have guessed this was here. And Central Arts started branching out and doing a bunch of cool stuff. So we started doing concerts. We host a lot of punk and metal concerts, which my son organizes those. And we started just expanding out. to If there was an art need or anything you could experiment with, we did it. We did movie nights. We did rap ciphers, we did poetry readings, we did comedy nights. So we've done everything and anything to bring a, a new level of culture to Bedford. I will just give you a, a, a strong compliment to, to plug you. Um, you know, I live in Dallas and, and I've lived in a couple of the, the kind of cool neighborhoods and I definitely seek out, you know, events. Um, you know, I've spent a lot of my life in, in Chicago and, and very actively kind of sought out, you know, underground urban places, right? You know, um, ran, ran newspaper at one point that had a lot of those cultural events and, and everything like that. Um, I think in any of those contexts, the stuff that you do, the events that you do would hold up to, to you know, any of those places. I mean, I think that, that the stuff that you do holds up to a lot of the, the standards for the, the kind of cool underground places that I went to, not only in Dallas, but in Chicago. Um, so I was blown away when I went there, and I think that it's it's cool to see that this little kind of this place in a strip mall that I would have never experienced, and that frankly, um, you know, I might have had some type of snobbery to think things like this couldn't exist in a suburban strip mall. Um, you guys did it there, and, and and you guys have done a really good job with it. So I'll just just to give you that that compliment. Um, it's it is a. Um, I think it's a lesson that you know all of our places have a lot of people who are 
really creative and really doing some cool stuff um, and that we can't think of this as being something that's that's only limited to a handful of neighborhoods in, in our big cities and, and so so just wanted to kind of give you give you props for that and the quality of work that you were doing there. Yeah, I want I want to ask a couple questions off of what we've been talking about. So the first one is uh, I think it's great that you saw that this area had dark areas and you need to light it up and I want to kind of get where that just motivation to just make something happen because you weren't the owner of the of the property but it was just in your city and you saw something needed to change and where that kind of comes from and then also talk a little bit about just this idea of why it's maybe important to do something in a shopping center where most people might say well you know like just because we do this doesn't mean it'll necessarily happen right now we don't know exactly you know I guess there's a lot of uncertainty right now, right, in the market, and why it's important to do something, even though you don't necessarily know exactly how it's going to work out. Okay, so one of the cool things about what we did was that nobody was expecting it because this is the most underwhelming-looking shopping center in the world. I mean, it just has. There's nothing that you'd be like, okay, this will work. And the fact that we did this, it's there was a pub around the corner, and there was a a convenience store. So people from the pub would walk to the convenience store and I would notice these handprints on the windows. And as the handprints were on the windows, it was just, at first it was annoying because I'm cleaning this up and then I'm like, no, these are people that are actually peeking in. And this one guy came up to me, he's like, hey, do you know anything about this? And I'm like, yeah, kind of do. He's all, me and my friends think that this is some rich girl and her dad owns the shopping center and she's got all her artist friends and they're just putting their art up here. And that's what, that's what they're trying to do here. And I was like, no, dude, it's totally not. It's a city project. He's like, this is a city project? And I'm like, yeah, it's because we're trying to revitalize this. And I drove by that shopping center every day for the past seven years because it's on my way home. And to see it just dark and empty and just watch it decline, it was really, really depressing. And in fact, I was walking by it last night, and I realized that since COVID happened, it looked exactly the same way that I got it. And I was like, this is like kind of just creepy to see it back to this because I hadn't seen this way in about four years. And it's the unexpectedness of it. I think that's what made it really work because we hosted a pop-up event and we had 700 people come from the city just to see what we were doing. And that's kind of cool. The first shot out of the bay that nobody was expecting this. And we just kept, we kept it up and we kept it handling and kept going and the more we did it, the more excitement we created in the community, and the more these businesses started to flourish. So once What's Popping came in, it really started to change it because now people are saying that this is actually working. And they were the first of the businesses to come in, so they were our pioneer. And once they were there, they brought a whole level of, of just unexpectedness too because who would expect a popcorn shop? When they said they were going to open a popcorn shop, I'm like, yeah, this will last six months. And... Here they are five years later, and they've also got several awards from the cities. They're involved in everything. So they won Best Business, I think, twice. And it's just amazing to see that because nobody was expecting that. That's really cool. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm interested in discussing kind of what ended up happening next. Um, so to give kind of some background, uh, which I alluded to before, we ended up getting hired by the city of Hearst. Um, we were hired, uh, among other things, to do a, an event series um, that was in this um, strip shopping center uh, that had some, some really strong assets, including the Artisan Theater, which is 
community theater almost under-describes it, but it's the largest community theater in the state of Texas, um, as well as a variety of other really cool assets. Um, so we are working in this, we're doing this event series, and we're coming up with strategies to try to make sure that we're engaging the businesses and others in such a way that we can leave behind a lasting impact. Uh, and then we get introduced by Cindy Shepard um, to you, uh, and we end up having some conversations with the city, and, and there starts to be momentum to having a second Central Arts location in this strip mall to kind of help to establish the uh, where we were working as a, um, a cultural center. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that started and then talk a little bit about the experiences that you've had? Um, and I know uh, Sergio is, is really kind of the, the head of this, but I know you've also been involved in this as well in, the, in sort of opening up the central arts of Hearst location. Okay, so when we met with you guys, so our first foray in the Hearst, we've known about the pipeline, we've sat there, we've known about the artisan, and we go meet with the city, and we meet about the pop-up series, and Steve Bowden says, hey, you guys want to, you guys want a part of the shopping center? We're like, what? And they offer us a 3,000 square foot building, which is actually where I'm in, sitting in right now. And it was totally unexpected, totally out of, out of left field, and I was, I was pretty excited about that because... Now we're starting to expand, we're starting to grow, and one of the important things about this is that the city is now our main client, so we have to provide services and things that aren't here. So the first thing we do when we start Central Arts of Hearst is that we go and start offering things that weren't there, like $6 after school programs, and six. everything has to be affordable because the city's subs, subsidizing a lot of this. And from just that initial meeting with the pop-ups, that started the whole ball rolling, and it starts to make a new community impact. So from there, we are in talks with taking over the old Just Right building and creating a youth center and bringing a new level of dynamic to the shopping center. So we're going to host concerts and do a whole little coffee shop, which we're sorely lacking here, and create like a whole new level of retail that this community hasn't had. And I don't think that would have happened without meeting with you guys and being a part of that, that pop-up series because then it really ties the whole value of, okay, now we know what we're doing. Now this placemaking happens, and now we're able to create an environment that out of an old shopping center that just wasn't there before. I, I actually, the whole story of this kind of Hearst project is very rewarding to me because, you know, when we... Um, when we work on something and we do, even if it's something like an event series, it's never just an event series. That's not really the part that's most important. The part that's important is, is building relationships and getting people excited and, um, and allowing people to, you know, giving people tools and resources they need to help bring things to the next level. So I thought, I thought that was so cool. So you have this, this one space, the Artisan Theater, and then we, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, you have this one space that you're using for, um, for Central Arts, which is a smaller storefront. Um, and then uh, the, the story was when we first started working there, there was this small grocery store called Just Ripe. Um, I'm drawing a blank on how many square feet it is. I don't know if you know. 10,000. 10,000 square feet. Okay. So you have this 10,000 square foot former grocery store. It becomes empty. 
Um, and then, uh, and it's, it's been empty for, for a little while. They have some, some ability to, uh, there's some ability to serve food and so forth. Um, and we've had a lot of discussions with you and I know with, with the owners and, and I know you talked to, uh, to Monty Anderson and everything about what could be done with this space, because we felt like if this could be something that has a lot of different curated vendors or something like that, uh, that this could be a, a, a tremendous opportunity. Um, so I just found out recently from you, and one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you is that not only do you have Central Arts of Hearst, um, but in this same strip mall where all this other thing is happening, you now are, are um, have this just ripe space and are, are working on strategies to curate it. Um, obviously, there's been you know a massive disruption in that, but I know that once the, that starts to be reduced, you're going to be back at it again. Can you talk to us about this just ripe space? Um, kind of what your plan, what your plans are, and maybe what your what your thinking is, and, and how you are, um, how you're strategizing about the the use and curation of this space. Okay, so March 12th, we go and we talk to Will Sloan, who's and who's a son of all the owners of the of the shopping center. We meet with him and we talk, about, we talk to him about we need to have some kind of youth center here. We need to make something a little bit cooler than just another restaurant or something that just, you know, just, just would add, well, it doesn't add anything to the community. And we negotiated this out by saying, okay, well, the space has been empty for a year since we've been here and we would like to make it into something a lot better. And we told him that we would be asking him to invest in us as we're investing in him because we're trying some unknown territories here. Because the biggest problem here is that nobody knows how this is going to turn out or what this is going to look like after COVID. So we take over the space. And then on the 13th, that's when everyone starts freaking out about this is where you need to go down to lockdowns and everything else. So he, we have a contingency plan of we're going to use this time to start building it out. But in the meantime, we were doing a bunch of concerts out in Bedford. And we had, we had brought 38 kids to City Hall to tell them that, yeah, we do need something like this in Bedford. We do need a venue where we can take these kids and have a safe place for them to be versus just, you know, having a bunch of kids that are too young to hang out at bars or, you know, that and give them a place to be versus, like, let's just leave them out to the community and see what happens from there. And that we had a concert and we got raided by the fire marshal and the police who were extremely, extremely generous because they let us continue our concert. We just had to kick out about 25 kids from the room to make it work. And I sat with the fire marshal and, you know, like every other group that becomes big and starts to become something, you know, now we have to worry about sprinkler systems and now we have to worry about all the stuff that our building currently doesn't have. And the Bedford location doesn't have a back door. So that took our occupancy down from 100 down to 50. And our average concert had about 150 kids. And then once you add the band members, now you're at 175. So Just Ripe is perfect for this because it has everything we need. It's sprinkled. It has the back doors. It has the, the two large doors. So if there was a problem, anyone could get in and out of. So it works really, really well for that aspect. And then we start thinking about what's missing. So we need a coffee shop. There's two giant walk-ins. So there's a walk-in freezer and a walk-in refrigerator. So why not utilize those? And we teamed up with Awareness Project, who's another nonprofit that has a pay-as-you-go cafe. And they're in Bedford, and their shopping center owner is just one of these guys that just doesn't care. We had an opportunity with the Richardson developers to let's, let's try to buy this piece of property. And I meet with a guy, and he wants something astronomical for this piece of land. That's probably, if $60,000 is probably generous for it. 
but because he's in California and now he thinks that it's worth about 1.5 to 2 million, it just doesn't make sense. And so that makes Bedford out of the question. So that's what really makes this Hearst space really unique about it because we have the opportunity to do what we need to do there. And it's interesting because it's, it's we've seen in Dallas where um, it's very difficult to do any type of grassroots cultural events because usually at some point you're breaking some building code or fire code or something like that. So, um, and, you know, and the, and the fire marshal has shut a bunch of things down in the past. So that's cool that you found a space that that works with all of that and that has all of the space and that has capabilities for, for food and, and things like that. Um, yeah, and obviously this is a time of, of a lot of uncertainty as to how these spaces can be used. And, and even how much they'll cost. Yeah, Josh, what are you? What are your, some of your innovative thoughts of how you're going to start bringing this on some things back uh, during this, right? The the COVID crisis or whatever you want to call it, right now. What are what are your kind of your ideas of of the steps that you're planning to take? And it doesn't have to be when, but maybe how and what's going to trigger uh, your decisions uh, moving forward. Have you obviously you've given thought to it, but I don't know if you have anything that you'd like to share that maybe, you know, different people can hear how you're thinking about it and in the different ways that you have innovated throughout your. So the one thing I'm very blessed to have is I have two boys that are very, very entrepreneurial. Cedric is the one that sets up all the concerts over for Bedford, and he's been doing this since he was 14 years old. He was working at 1919 over in Fort Worth, and he was setting up concerts, and his first uh actual concert promotion thing was when he set up a Battle of the Bands at Treetops, which is a high school he went to. And, you know, he brings all these, like, these punk and metal kids, and they're moshing and everything at the school gym, and the principal's like, man, Cedric, I never expected that to happen. I'm really excited that this is going on. So that's what initially starts Cedric's uh, journey into becoming a promoter. And my second son, Cameron, is a, he buys and sells Nikes and vintage clothing. And then he restores everything and brings it to the community in that manner. So he's basically become a green reseller. And so he created a company called Sneaker for Cheaper, whereas he is he's uh, selling and, and, and developing this little business. It's basically a good cottage industry because now he can, um, he can go produce stuff that, you know, just wasn't there before. And between the two boys, they've also set up a bunch of pop-ups. And they went to do uh, the holiday festivals with Jay and Jen, who's another one of the uh, local businesses here. They had a company called Thrifty Pirate, and they are they they just host pop-ups, and it's kind of cool to work with them because they bring a whole new like antique aspect to it. That's cool. Um, you know, I'd also even even more broadly. Um, I know that you you're doing consulting in in Richardson, and I know that. Um, you know, after you kind of realized uh, that, I think that, you know, a couple of years ago, probably you started to realize that there was a lot of value that you could share with other strip malls with this and so forth. Um, my thought is that this type of consulting um, is probably going to be more valuable than, than ever, that there's going to be a lot of strip malls that are going to be uh, suffering or a lot of places in general that are going to need this type of help. Um, especially as as the you know some companies can't pay commercial rent and so forth. Um, have you given thought to 
um, what you can do or how your kind of position in helping to consult some of these cities and developers might change after the COVID crisis? I think what's going to have to happen is we need to start being a lot more creative in the way we're setting up businesses. And one of the things I was telling the artisan, I was like, we need to start realizing that we need to be cohesive and we need to create a culture of this is the value we bring to the community. And negotiating rents needs to be in that aspect, saying this is, you know, we're, we're all going to have this new normal that we just never had before because right now everybody's missing places, everybody's missing things. And the one thing I really want to do is I want to go out to dinner and I want to go experience something that I haven't experienced because now I'm stuck at home. I want to experience like different kind of shopping. I don't want to go to the mall anymore and go find the exact same piece of clothing in 20 different stores. And I think what we need to do is we need to start realizing that these small little businesses and these little, these little areas that we've been overlooking, we, we need to get rid of that homogenization of America. And everybody else that has a vision of what America should look like should be allowed to play. And what happens with a lot of these old shopping centers is, like I said, with the Bedford Center, we can't host concerts because we don't have a sprinkler system in or we don't have this aspect in. And a lot of these shopping center owners have just been hit also at the same time. So they're not going to have the money for build-outs like we used to have. And part of the problem with codes, too, is that now we have, like for the first thing we did at Hearst, is we had to expand out the bathroom because we had a two-foot by two-foot bathroom, which definitely wasn't going to fly by AA standards. So we needed to make sure that we have to expand those bathrooms out. And there has to be a way with the cities that say, okay, these are the codes we have, and we have to understand that as we go with them, we have to start to, you know, give you a little bit of leniency, give you a time period where you have to start redeveloping this in a way saying, okay, well, in 30 days, this is what you need to have fixed. In 40 days, you need to have this aspect fixed. In a year, this is what needs to be done. That way, the business gets off, off the ground. They realize that they're not going to just be throwing money into something that might not work six months down the line, and the city can get an empty space in, which is we're going to have tons of these empty spaces because a lot of these businesses, unfortunately, aren't going to survive. I mean, when Ruth Crisp is getting $20 million and the rest of us small businesses aren't getting anything, I mean, that just says a lot about where our American values are. We're going to take care of the big guy and not the little guy. But the little guys, there's so many more of us than there ever was. And to see that we ran out of disaster relief money in less than, what, two weeks? That really says how many small businesses are out there in America. And we are the backbone of America, and we need to start realizing that it needs to change. It needs to be where there has to be that flexibility. And co codes do need to just have a little bit of balance there. It's, it's, it's kind of like an incremental certificate of occupancy sort yes. of idea, right? I think that's a good one. Yeah, that's an idea I've heard uh, a couple times very recently, and I think that it's it's – it's really a fantastic one like that. I think that's a gem that should be looked at. And, you know, obviously building codes are not usually, uh, you know, you adapt something that's international rather than something that's hyper local, but maybe that starts to need to be rethought, um, especially in, you know, some bigger some states or bigger cities that, that might have the clout to be able to do that. Um, and focus on the things in the short term that are, are public health and safety. Um, because it's going to be, it, it really is going to add fuel to the, to the fire of this crisis that a lot of the 
uh, the whole system is set in place to assume that you're going to have often a national credit tenant, but certainly that you're going to have an expensive build-out and that people are going to have 10-year leases or 5-year leases, um, and the system's not set up for either smaller businesses getting started or businesses that used to be bigger that need to get restarted. So I think that's a very important point. Yeah, on on your point about you know the businesses that are getting some of the, the cash from the, the stimulus package or whatever we want to call it, the COVID package, I think it's kind of crazy that the small businesses are under five. If you have 400 employees, I don't see how that's a small business. Um, that's not the ones that, you know, are, you're typically now you're certainly dealing with, um, you know, a large amount of employees there. But you're also like there's a whole, whole lot of small businesses under 100 people, under 50 people that are um, having a hard time right now. And then you've got like you're talking about, it's a lot easier for these, you know, 250 to 500 uh, person businesses and to be able to acquire some of that, uh, the, the different resources that have been put out there. And they've got, you know, they have, if you have a department that can focus on acquiring some of these, uh, this grant money or this, this uh, re- refundable loan uh, loans that have already been completely depleted after I think like one week, you know, it's a little different than the guy who's I've, I've got to figure out how I'm going to sell some stuff this week. And I've got to figure out, you know, how I'm going to pay my five employees and I've got to figure out how we're going to be able to apply for this package because all that stuff takes time. And, uh, you know, I just, I think it's a weird number of 500, 500 is a pretty big number. I feel like for a small business, but you know, I don't want to get too political on any of this stuff. Yeah, because it, it was really disappointing to see that money go so quickly. Because the moment COVID hit, we were the first business to close because we dealt with children and a lot of our volunteers are older. So we haven't had a class in here probably since the 10th of March. So that's a lot of lost revenue. That's a lot of rest, lost income. That's just a lot of lost everything because a lot of people tend to forget that you exist. And... The first thing I did was I went out to Equal Hearts, who provides our lunches for our children, and I asked them what I can do to help them. And for the first time in the past 20 years, I started calling someone else boss. I started calling Teresa boss because it's like, what do you need me to do? What do you need me to take this? What do you want me to do? Because I realized that without getting food to the community, that's the number one essential, especially over here at Hearst, because it's a, it is a more economically depressed area. And a lot of the kids here weren't going to get to be get to eat because a lot of their food came from the school. So we we brought all this food out. I put out over about a ton of rice legitimately and about a thousand canned goods. And we keep these little tables up. And we started a program called No More Starving Artists because we need to stay relevant and we need to feed the community. And it's created this amazing goodwill because now we're teaming up with several other businesses. And we're providing, like right now, we're providing lunch that was donated. So we got 75 sandwiches from a sandwich shop out in South Lake. We also are providing about 100 lunches from Equal Hearts. So we are just feeding this community. But in that time period, that just takes up a lot of time. So all my time to set up all the programs, I mean, I'm totally wiped at the end of the day because I've carried all these all these groceries. I've actually injured my wrist doing this kind of thing, but it's important that the community gets this out here. And to have a company that can just have a whole legal department that fills out this form 
and their own bankers that just already have that relationship with them. I couldn't get my Chase banker online. Hmm. And that really, you know, even though I banked with Chase for the past 14 years, I don't have that relationship right now that these bigger companies have. And yeah, like you said, 500 is a huge amount of employees. I could, and a lot of smaller businesses just aren't going to bounce back from this, unfortunately. I mean, I haven't seen any kind of money. We were promised $10,000 in three days. That was like nine days ago. So I was really grateful. I wasn't holding on thinking that there was going to be money there. But I know a lot of comp- I know a lot of people that were, and I know a lot of people that just, you know, they're like, oh, I got all this money coming, and I'm like, I wouldn't count on that. And I think a lot of that comes down to my, you know, being a Gen Xer and just realizing that, you know, we don't have any faith in a lot of these things because it's only you. And it was really sad to see that. I mean, I mean, we are we are of an age where we've, uh, you know, where we've already had our uh, part of our careers during a previous crisis. Um, and have seen that that it was kind of like the the big people that got uh, bailed out and uh, not necessarily the the little people. Um, you know, one of the things that that I think about a lot and that I've been talking about is that no matter what, um, the entities that I think are going to make it through this, the small businesses that are going to have a much better chance, even the, for example, the downtowns that are going to have a much better chance or the cities that are going to have a much better chance are ones who are taking whatever steps they can to kind of keep as relevant as possible during this time. And it's interesting because um, a lot of what you're doing is maybe is maybe keeping relevant in, in a different way than, than I would normally think of, but still keeping very relevant within the community. Um, because, you know, there's probably, I mean, you could, you could do arts classes online and things like that. I don't know to what extent you are. Um, you can certainly, you know, have your own, you know, projects that, that everybody pursues. Um, but what's, what's interesting is that you've decided at least in part to become relevant by providing a very basic need to the community and and by you know literally providing people with food um, and I'm sure that that that's that's something that's building relationships you're probably finding a lot of new people who are who are coming in and you're probably finding a new forms of of support by doing that I would think yeah, it's, it's like uh, right now while you're, t- while you're making that statement, I'm watching Susan Shaw, who's an insurance agent. She's out there handing food out to the community right now. And this isn't even her neighborhood. She's about three or four miles up the street. And the Chamber of Commerce all teamed up. And one of the things we saw is that, you know, we are starting to see a little bit of the decline of society. We had um, over at Pipeline at, at the Bel Air, my friend Chewy, who owns the uh, Tutti Frutti, which is at a new ice cream shop that opened up in that little space that was all blacked out that if you remember that one, he took that over and became a local celebrity because he's out there marketing everything. He's, he's really personable. He makes jokes with the customers and he's just an all around awesome guy. And three days ago, somebody went in and broke into his shop. It was about four kids that just had nothing else to do. They had a gun, which was just ends up being a BB gun later on. We find out. And they trashed his store, and somebody felt the need to defecate in his store. And prior to this, about back in October, somebody tried to steal his tip jar, and they he ran him off. And the next morning, we show up, and there's a big "I hate Mexicans" spray painted on the wall. So we change "I hate" to "I love" 
Mexicans, and then we paint right over it within less than like four or five hours. But we go on Facebook with this, and we start talking to the community and say, this is what happened here. And within him, the last event, we raised over $2,400 within a day so we could repair his shop. And people just kept flocking into him. I mean, it was probably the best day of business he's had in a very long time. When they spray painted I Hate Mexicans over there, we go to the community, we start fundraising, and we started a mural project. And Sergio runs this with the HEB leadership group. So we've got all these different businesses that teamed up, and they started painting this giant mural, and we were almost about to have it unveiling, and then COVID hit. So we're sitting at 75% of a mural, but to see that kind of activity and see that culture and that relevance and see how the community is rallying against somebody, especially somebody that you would never expected it, because who would have thought a little ice cream shop in, you know, in, in Hearst was going to make that big of an impact? And I was doing my taxes to get prepared for the, for the grant, and I'm looking at my phone, and I'm at $1,000, and I had just barely posted that. And yeah, and it was, just, it was just surreal to see that because we start this development, and we start to see the community's respect for something new. Right. Yeah, I, I think you've brought up a really good point that if there's people out there that really don't that feel kind of down, one of the better ways, at least in my life, that's been helpful is helping other people. It just sometimes you don't necessarily feel like it, but you feel a lot better after doing it. You were mentioning that with just delivering the food. Like, you know, I, I don't really know exactly what we need to do right now, but I know that people need food. And if I go out and I do that, it, it just it, it helps us. It helps you. Uh, deal with the situation that you're in better by realizing one, I'm not the only one going through stuff right now. And two, you start to recognize the amount that of contribution that you can make. And by helping other people, generally, we, we, we feel better um, throughout that process. And so I think it's really good to bring up the idea of a practical way of kind of moving forward is to help your neighbor or to help someone that you can help in whatever way that you can do that. And I think it's great that uh, you've been doing that in a lot of different ways. So I just wanted to yeah, highlight part that. And of it's, it's like, it's like, sorry. I was gonna say part of it's kind of being slightly selfish because I needed that moment of like, okay, I went through the whole, I'm ruined. I'm gonna have to close Bedford down. I'm gonna have to do all this other stuff. I'm gonna have to let people go. I'm gonna have to close the spray foam business. I don't know how that's going. I don't know what everything's going to look like. So instead of just staying at home and playing video games or watching Netflix, I realized that I got to do something. And if I had to stay at home, if I had to quarantine myself, I think that my mental state would have gone down tremendously. But what happened was this lady said, she was on Facebook and she said that she couldn't get food because she had just got out of chemo. And she was extremely afraid to just go out of the community. And when everything hit, I went and I bought a bunch of groceries and I had a bunch of stuff. And I realized it wasn't going to be as bad as everyone said it was going to be. So I had about 25 pounds of chicken that I had in the freezer at Bedford and I took it to her. But before I did that, I went to Equal Hearts to see what they had. And I called Teresa up and I said, hey, I need a couple of boxes of food because I'm going to deliver it out to the community. And she gives me a minivan full of food. And from there, it was like, wait, there's so much food here. There's so much opportunity here. And it's selfish of me to not do this for the community. I have to do this and make sure that everyone has what they need. Because if this lady needed food, who else needed food? 
So I set up our table outside and I just laid everything on there and I just said, take what you need. Made this little crappy little sign. And I go back like an hour later and everything's gone. And then that's when I realized, oh, okay, this is a bigger problem than I'm going to expect it to be. So I start picking up food from Teresa and I, uh, my son Cameron bought a minivan for Sneaker for Cheaper. So I started calling it the little beat up white minivan of hope and loading it up with food. And I took it to Richardson, I would take it to Bedford and I would take it to Hearst. And that's pretty much how I was keeping my sanity to those first days. And I was coming up with plans and saying, okay, as I drive this food out, what needs to be done? What, need, what, what, what repair work needs to happen here? And that led me to say, okay, we, need, we do need a food ministry. We do need to make sure that food gets out to this community. And one of the things I realized is that this isn't going to be like a week or two weeks or a month. It's going to probably be about a two-year project. So we start reaching out to other businesses, and we start saying, this is what we need. This is how you can help. And people started giving us money, and we start making these Aldi runs and buying all these canned goods and, and mac and cheese or whatever we're allowed to get in big bulk, and we put them out on the table. And normally a table lasts for about maybe five or six hours. And I come back one night and the table's completely stocked. And I'm like, wait, who did this? And this old lady had a minivan full of stuff. So she's starting to take up on this. And she said, I have food, I have money, I can do this. This has been my life. I've been in places where I didn't have anything to eat and now it's my turn to give back. And you start to inspire people to do that. And Cedric's been working with me on that, and he's been handing out food to the community. And at first, he had to get over his initial fear of COVID, and but once he did, he realized that, you know, these people do need help. And just about an hour ago, he took a family of seven that came walking over here. He drove all their food over there and drove them back home, so that way they could have what they needed for the week. And he said, you know, that was a long walk these people were going to take, because a lot of these people don't have cars, and a lot of these people don't have what they really need for the, you know, just to be basic that we take for granted. And to see that, just that little bit of change really makes a huge difference. Josh, that's a powerful story. And, you know, there's, it's, it's as I think about it, there's so little awareness, um, maybe among the people who are often writing and, and thinking about this and and can work from home or, or who have some sort of income or a little bit more privilege, um, you know, I, I think that we're not as connected as we could be to the fact that there's a lot of people who are, don't even know where their next meal is coming from right now through this crisis. And, um, and we're all going to have to think more about um, you know, especially in the, the coming weeks and months um, about those people and making sure that, that they have the, the basics that they need to keep going. Um, but that's, that's just a really rough situation, and it's, it's, um, it's awesome that, that you were able to help. So earlier you were talking about the unexpectedness and how that was what made a lot of what you were doing successful. And I think that's a really good point because when people see things happening in a place where it normally wouldn't happen or hasn't happened, it's something that's different. And I think people are attracted to, uh, as you said, something that's different. Whenever you talk to the, about the homogenization of America and how whenever we see different things and we see uniqueness, if that's something that's happening in a shopping center, people say, this is different. What, they what, they want to know what's going on there, right? If you see it in a more traditional neighborhood that might be having that, like in an arts district, you'd be like, oh, I, I get what's going on here. But when it's in, in an unexpected place, I think that people notice it 
and it sticks out to us. And I think so this idea of investing in the unexpected is a really great kind of boilerplate of saying, hey, you know what, just because it's not normally done or just because we don't know what's going to happen doesn't mean it's not a good idea to invest in the unexpected. Yeah. And Bedford, what I started doing was I started painting these really big paintings on wood and I live, to, I live on the Bedford Linear Trail. So I start hanging these paintings on my fences. And right now we're five houses up the street with nothing but these, I basically moved Central Arts outside. So we put a bunch of Christmas lights up and we made this COVID trail and our big joke is we're making the COVID trees and everything else, but people walk by this and now people have started making this part of their routine to see what new stuff we put out there because it wasn't expected. Because you know you have a trail that traditionally had nothing and now we start putting these little pieces of artwork up and there's a guy up the street who took the Christmas laser lights and he's putting them out there and they project them onto the trees so they look like fireflies. And instead of being in this dreary dark spot on the trail, now it's this bright, vibrant area that created the unexpected. And it created this new level of placemaking where these people are like, yeah, we normally never walk down this far, but our neighbor told us this about this. And they're excited. And now I'm noticing littler, little artwork on the fences and people are drawing on the sidewalk. And it's creating this excitement that wasn't there before. Because once again, it wasn't expected. And one of my whole things is that you put art in unexpected places and unexpected things happen. And I think that that ties into a point of a lot of relevance in, in the short term right now. Um, and, you know, you were talking about even before this, a, a public art project that really helped to, to bring people together. Um, but public art is something that we can do right now to enhance a sense of place, to enhance a sense of hope and to to sort of kind of set the foundation for when we start to recover from this. Um, so I think that that is, you know, that's that's a very important type of thing. We're, we're working with um, communities right now and even looking at things as simple as murals or, um, you know, we're working with this, this community, Portland, Texas, and we might be advising them. They have a lot of wind there, so we, they, we might be advising them on putting in some wind sculptures um, or things like window displays, you know, and, and that can at least get people to say, oh, this is a place they're doing these things there's this sense of hope we see in, in Dallas for example um, where you have some some really colorful street crossings um, and that's something that can be done right now that might not sound that important but if it helps to kind of give people a sense that a place is recovering it might be important so uh, I'd love to follow you as you keep doing stuff like that well and like you said like people aren't expecting those sorts of things right now right so if you see it happening now, like you talked about this art walk that you've created, when people see that, they're like, wait, how is something going on right now? They want to know, like, I think anything that's happening, if you saw a gathering of like 100 people, which shouldn't be happening, but everyone would be like, I want to know what's going on. Normally, you see that like in a certain place, you're not going to be like, oh, I wonder what's going on here, right? But now if you see it, you're going to be like, what the heck? Like, everyone's going to be calling, you shouldn't be doing this. What I'm trying to say is the things that we see right now that are any sign of activity or hope or normalcy, people are going to take notice more so than they normally would. And then things can become a, a story um, and help to, to inform the narrative of a place when 
two months ago they they would have been n- nobody would have paid attention. People want to see hope right now. People want good news right now. So that's that's really important. And and I, I look forward to to seeing how we might be able to uh, to to support you if you have other projects, um, if you do other stuff with public art that you're involved with in the near future. I think that'd be really cool. Um, so uh, we're we're at just about an hour right over here. Um, so I, I'll let you kind of kind of summarize, and I know that um, I'll let you leave some some last thoughts about things that maybe people should know about Central Arts, or that uh, or the communities that you work with, or the um, the consulting and the, yeah, or the businesses and the consulting that you're you're doing um, for uh, for at least one community around DFW, but probably more in the future, I would suspect. Shamelessly Shamelessly plug plug away, huh? (laughs) Yeah. What I always forget is that, you know, there is a spray foam company involved in this, which is Go Green Solutions, which is pretty much pays a lot of the way for Central Arts. And my wife, when I started this, she's like, why are you doing this? And I'm like, it's my marketing. And that was my initial big lie because I was like, (laughs) I said, this is what's going to make me stand out. And I had no idea it was going to work the way I expected it to work. So I'm really grateful it did. Because I said, I don't want to be known as the spray foam guy because there's a million guys that do that. I want to be known as the guy that brings a change to the community. And sure enough, we go to parties with my builders, and that's the first thing they say. is like, oh, this guy owns an art studio. He does all this work with the kids. He does all this with special needs and all this. So it's actually overshadows a lot of what Go Green does because Go Green is just it's, – it's something I'm really good at, and it's something I'm really bored of because I've been doing it for 14 years. And every day I work with Central Arts is something new. There's a new challenge or a new program to instill. And it really does make a big difference in the community. The next project we're working on is we are going to take the storefront project out to the public. We're going to start calling it a the Suburbanist, where we are going to start leasing out spaces or getting businesses to pay us to do what we've been doing for free for the longest time. Because we think that that's the easiest way and the quickest way to bring attention to your building. And especially now that we're going to have so much dead, empty retail, we need to start correcting that. And that's the biggest plan I have for that. So that's what we'll be working on in 2021. We're working with Richardson, so we're very excited to work with Durkin Enterprises. Those guys are great. We love them. And we will be activating a lot of Greenville Avenue and Polk Street and Richardson. So we're excited about that. Bedford always stays strong doing what Bedford does, which is basically going to be classes. We're looking forward to working with Hearst and the new Just Ripe, where we still need to come up with a name for it. So, But that will be pretty awesome to work with. And Central Arts of Hearst, once again, we do kids' classes. We do after-school programs. We do special needs nights. We, If there's a need, we're basically filling it in the community. Um, keep up all of the great work, and we look forward to having some... Uh, lots of conversations in the future. Uh, I think that right now, your services are going to be more needed than ever. And developers and cities, uh, suburbs are going to have to rethink a lot of the way that they do business. And you know, throwing a huge amount of money at everything is not going to be as important as you know, paying attention to the details and and taking the the next steps. And I think that you're going to be a uh, a crucial part of that process here in this region. Well, thank you, sir. Thanks for coming on, man. We really appreciate it. Appreciate being on. Take care, Josh. All right, thank you.